Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company Podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
A teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Brandy, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks a lot for having me. I am so excited to have you here for this episode um, and for my people, my audience to hear from another, <clears throat> let's start over. <laughs> I should not have eaten almonds because nothing is coming out. <laughs> okay, okay. So what I do when I have to restart for Rachel is I put my arms out like this. It just makes her realize where to start is. So I'll tell her to start a little bit later. Okay. Hi, Brandy. Hi, Ashley. How are you today? I am so good. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks a lot for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our discussion. I am super excited to share the content that you can bring. I have followed you um, for quite some time on Instagram, um, and I think you have really good information. And in addition to that, our interviews with school psychologists have traditionally done well, which means that my audience is probably going to be really likely to um, need the information that you have to provide to us today. So why don't we start off by just having you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your family, where you are, that kind of stuff. So um, I'm Brandy Tanner and I am a psychologist. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I have a psychology practice where I specialize in evaluation for kids and teens. And I also have a special education advocacy practice called Your IEP Source. So I used to work in schools for several years, and then I've kind of shifted over to the private side so that I can really get in there and work more directly with families. And that's that's what we're going to be talking about, you know, kind of prim primarily today is that difference of, um, you know, what we get from a school psychologist versus what we get privately in outpatient therapy. Um, and, and then maybe like where there's a blend and, and where we can kind of benefit from one in one setting and another in another setting. So um, I, I like when people say things, I want to dive right in. <laughs> I, I want to know. Um, so let's start with this, um, Brianna, just so that we can kind of contextualize this for people. Why don't you give us a little background on um, the families that you've worked with, how you've worked with families um, with children with disabilities, kind of both in the schools and in private. Kind of give us a little context here. Okay. Um, so I started out in my career many years ago as a special education teacher. So um, initially I was a um, co-teacher for high school students, mainly um, learning disability students. Um, I did teach in self-contained classes for a couple of years. And after some time, I really wanted to get more into working with kids in depth as opposed to like, I know that they had things going on at home and I'm here trying to teach you math. And because of whatever is going on in your home life, you're not able to focus on what I'm doing with you just on these surface level academics. 
So I went back and um, re-specialized in school psychology. Um, through that, I did a specialized internship in autism, um, extra training for autism diagnosis and treatment. Um, I worked in a public school system here in my area for several years. And after a while, I decided, like I said before, I wanted to transition out so that I could work more closely and directly with families outside of the system. I'm just curious, did you need more training to go outpatient or can you work with that school psych certificate privately? No, um, to be a licensed psychologist, um, there are actually several more um, hoops that you have to jump through, if you will. Um, there's a national test that I studied for about six months to take. And I also had to do an additional year of postdoctoral training. After I had my PhD, I had to do another year of supervision under somebody else that was already licensed before I could become a licensed psychologist to practice on my own. Wow. A lot of people, I'm sure that my curiosity um, solves a lot of other people's curiosities. A lot of people, and I'm sure they say this to you too in your field, like, I think I just always think I need to go to law school. I always think that I like want to know more. And I tell people that when I first really kind of dove into special education work as an attorney, I thought, well, my degree, my undergrad degree is in German education. So I need to go get a master's in special ed so that I understand the teaching practices. Um, and so I, I ask you that question because what I normally say to people is, yeah, you can't learn to be a school psychologist. You can't learn how to be an attorney, but you can take some time and also just kind of learn by doing um, to learn the skills and the strategies that attorneys use or to learn a good majority of the content that school psychologists know and understand or connect yourself with attorneys and school psychologists as the case may be um, that can help you and help you navigate things. So. Um, Ain't nobody want to take all those tests. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. That's for sure. Um, okay, so we are going to talk about the difference between, you know, kind of what we can get outpatient and what we can get um, in schools. But I never talk to a school psychologist that I don't have them preach about this topic. So the kind of general question is, um, what's the benefit to getting a an evaluation what can we do with that information i sometimes i feel like school teams you know do this like evaluation they they run you know six or eight different standardized tests and profiles and questionnaires and interviews and they do observations and and they write a report that you know might only be six pages but might be 20 pages long depending on the way that they write their reports and then we sit down to draft the iep and it's like nobody pays a lick of attention to the evaluation and nothing from the evaluation comes into the IEP, even in present levels. Um, and that drives me bonkers because my opinion, cut to the chase, is these things are incredibly important. So can you speak to that a little bit? Um, yeah, if, if you think that it drives you bonkers to read it and people don't use it, imagine if you did all the testing and wrote a 20 page report and people don't use it. It absolutely drives me bonkers. So um, in my opinion, like the most 
important information that you get out of the psych report is not just checking off, you know, what diagnosis applies or what eligibility category applies. Um, that evaluation can give you some really important information that you can use for treatment planning, for picking out goals and objectives that are going to help that student. Um, a lot of times the information in the testing can give you information about what are this child's particular strengths and weaknesses. Um, if you know what their strengths are, you can use that child's strengths in order to figure out these are some ways that they can learn to advocate for themselves or accommodate for some difficulties that they might have. And when we figure out the specific areas of weakness, then we know more how to target the interventions and what strategies are going to work best with them. So there's all kinds of rich information in that evaluation report that helps you to know how to work with that child best. So just, you know, quickly checking the scores or flipping through the back page to see, you know, like what eligibility category is being recommended or what the diagnosis is, you're really missing the most important part that that evaluation can help you with. Yeah. And, and my audience has heard me say that a million different times and in different ways, but the analogy or kind of the visual that I oftentimes give is the evaluation gives you this kind of like bucket of needs. And so picture yourself like scooping up the bucket of needs with the bottom half of a clamshell and that's your hand. So you're like cap capturing all of the needs and then you're gonna try to address the needs by capitalizing on the child's strengths or relative strengths, I just made a new word, strength misses, that's the whole clam. Um, and so, you know, maybe you could give us an example of like a child that, you know, has this particular weakness, like I, the one that I use, you can't take it because I'm going to say it, is touch points math. So a child that has um, trouble with like kind of understanding the um, general math computation concepts, but has a strong visual profile, then we might use touch points math because that does math calculation for visual learners. So what are some kind of like other ideas? Cause you can probably geek out about that better than I can, definitely can. Yeah, um, I think one of my favorite examples of that is when I work with families of kids that have autism spectrum disorders, um, sometimes you can use what seems like a weakness in being rigid or really on routine to your advantage. Because if you set a rule, set a routine and get that child following that rule or routine, um, you can get compliance a lot easier and help that child use that skill and transfer it into other areas. So that's one of my favorite ones. And um, I've never heard that clamshell analogy that you shared before. I hadn't thought about it like that, but that's a really good way to look at it. I think I actually came up with that um, when advocating for my own son, you know, kind of thinking like, okay, so what I do when I read a report is I highlight and it's easier for me with my own kid because I know what I want as a parent and I know how um, his needs look in the community and at home, like the other two thirds of the cycle, right? Home, community, and school are kind of the three areas of life, the three places where life happens. Um, and so I kind of highlight those needs. And then I think, do I want to go for this? Is this something that I want to address? And if so, how can we address it? How can how can we teach this so that Jack understands it? Um, and so that's when I was like, can we just kind of, it's not wraparound services, but it's like encircle him with services. Here's your need. And let's like hug the services to your need. I don't know. He just needs a lot of hugs. Maybe that's what it's all about. <laughs> so, okay. So let's talk about, um, you know, 
the, the family that says, oh, I really do think that my child might have dyslexia, or I really do think that my child might have a cognitive impairment, or what if it's autism, um, how, would a, how would a family go about getting their child evaluated? Um, I work with a lot of families in my private practice that want to get the answers as quickly as they can, and they want to get specific information, not just do they qualify for school services, but medically speaking, what are their diagnoses so that they can use that information for, um, you know, does the child need any prescription medications? Do they need any certain types of therapies or treatments or things like that? So um, on the private side of things, um, most people can just find a provider that does that type of service. Um, I always say make sure that you're getting somebody that specializes in evaluation for your child's age groups. Um, there's a lot of psychologists out there and there are a lot of different specialty areas. Um, you know, you don't want to go to somebody that specializes in, you know, like testing geriatric patients for dementia. You want to find somebody that works with kids. Um, and that evaluation, um, most of the time insurance companies aren't requiring you to have a referral. You can just find a provider that works with you and set up your appointment. Um, on the school side of things, um, it's more than just the testing. You know, there's the whole eligibility process to go through. So um, families that are going through that route, like I talked to them about um, writing a letter to make it known that they want the evaluation to take place. Um, sometimes people have mentioned to me that they verbally mentioned it and the school didn't proceed with the testing as they thought that it was going to happen and there was a long delay. So um, on the school side of things, you're gonna work on getting that process started and the actual formal testing will be a part of it. Right, and and so, and I encounter that too, where people are like, well, I started the process through school or I don't know how to start the process through school and I go ahead and get that process started. But then I, you know, I want the results now. I want to know because I'm a, Ashley Barlow is a fixer and I have a lot of clients. There's a lot of people that have kids that just want their kids to, they want to know so that they can start working on um, solutions. I didn't plan for this, but I know you can answer this one quickly and easily. Um, and that is talk about the importance if you choose to do the both tests, get stuff started at school, but also seek private evaluations. Why is it important to communicate to school that you're also seeking a private evaluation? Um, it's really important because some of the tests that we do, there's a potential for practice effects. So if I give you um, IQ test A today and the school psychologist gives you that same test next week, um, that second test can potentially be invalid because you might have remembered some of the questions or something like that. So it's really important. I usually try to get them separately and not during an overlapping time frame because of that. But it really is important to communicate with those evaluators if multiple evaluations are taking place so that they know what tests are being used and they don't administer them twice within a short time period because that can invalidate the results. Yeah, and we want valid results. We want something right. we can rely on. Um, so, okay, so how would testing at school and in a private clinic or with a private therapist, private evaluator, how would they be similar, school and private? Um, it would be similar in that the way that the tests are administered, there are standardized procedures for the way that we're supposed to present the questions to the child, um, if they're allowed to have prompts or not. Um, we're gonna be working one-on-one -on -one in a quiet area to administer the test. And a lot of times 
the tests that I would give in a private practice are the same exact tests that a school psychologist would administer. So the actual administering of the test, writing up a report, um, a lot of that looks the same. Um, I know you haven't asked this yet, but the differences are going to be coming in on the back end with once we have those scores, are we using them to determine school eligibility or are we looking at them to figure out if there's a diagnosis that applies to that student? Yeah, and and I think I want to add one piece because we are going to go to the differences next. But, but, but a difference that I notice is that private practitioners, and I don't think they have more desire to, to really get to the bottom of it. But I think there's a trend that private practitioners will take a test, the results of whatever the evaluation is. And if the if it makes them either kind of question something, like if, if something is not logical or something is not um, stereotypical, you know, like if a child um, has like, a, a working memory deficit, but then their visual processing is like off the charts great. Well, those two things don't oftentimes come together. And so if that happens, then my experience is a school psychologist might be like, well, that's weird. And then you get a sentence that says that doesn't happen very often. That's weird, but maybe it's because of this. Whereas in private clinics, it seems to me like they're more inclined. It's more frequent that those people will then do another layer of testing. Is that like, is that accurate to say um, right here? It, I also have seen that same pattern that, that you just described. Um, unfortunately, I feel like it's kind of a systemic issue. Um, you know, for example, the National Association of School Psychologists recommends that you have one school psychologist for every 500 students. Um, the national average currently, I can't remember the exact number, but it's approximately double that. And here in my state, the way that school psychologists are funded is one school psychologist for every 2,475 students. So that's almost five times what they're supposed to have. So um, particularly since COVID, the evaluation wait lists have blown up and you've got a long list of students that you've got to test. Um, you've got a checkbox of, you know, like we've got these criteria that say that this student meets eligibility. I'm going on and test the next student because I have many, many other students that I have to get to as quickly as possible. Um, you know, I'm thinking back to my own days when I was a school psychologist, I would really have loved to really delve in with each student and find all those intricacies and nuances about how that student processes information and be able to explain, you know, all those score inconsistencies, but just the, the way that the system is stacked like, I just did not have the time to do that for every single student. Like, if I could get them qualified for services, it's time to move on to the next one. Um, being in private practice, I do have more luxury of I can structure how much time I can allot for all of the evaluations. And, you know, if I see a score pattern that's not one that I'm used to, I can come back with a second test or a third test to look at that area in more depth. So, um, you know, I don't think it's anything about the evaluators themselves. It's more a systemic issue. Um, but I do have a lot more liberty to go into more in-depth testing on the private side than, than what my schedule would allow for in a school. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is um, 
that was much more eloquent than I could have said about the patterns that I noticed. But you know, another thing that happens sometimes is, um, you know, the the pattern of scores will indicate that maybe we ought to look into something else, and the school psychologist will have to call and get consent to evaluate um, in other areas of need. And the rigmarole of that is somewhat annoying. And so I think a lot of times school psychs say, you know what, we've got enough for eligibility. We've got enough areas of need identified. Let's get started in this. And then if we notice it, then we can add on goals or we can evaluate later or something like that. And honestly, I haven't ever really looked. That issue hasn't arisen in my practice necessarily, um, not to the need that I think we need to file due process or ask for an IEE or something. But um, I don't know that courts would really put a burden on schools to kind of geek out about scores and to just keep going until they had answered every single question anyway. So um, like, whereas in private practice, you go back to your client and say, okay, so now I, you know, like this sensory processing and ADHD, it does kind of look like autism. I wonder if I should run some autism profiles. Um, and then, you know, you can go back. And of course, if you need to, you can ask for more money and more time and all of that stuff. Whereas in schools, maybe that obligation is a little bit different, right? Yeah, um, I, I think that that is part of it. Um, I think the way that evaluations start in schools are are sometimes that makes a big difference. Myself in private practice, the first thing we do is a clinical interview with the parent. So I can run through the whole laundry list of, you know, like these are all the possibilities and try to get a really good handle on it at the beginning. And on the school side of things, it often looks like we're going to give a packet of papers and rating scales to this parent. And the parent might not think that something significant when they're filling out that paperwork, that information gets omitted. And then I don't find out until I'm halfway through the evaluation. If I would have interviewed them up front, I would have known and added that as a part of the assessment battery. So that, that's point. another way that they're different too. I had never thought about that, but that is true. And when I go into it, I've got an evaluation meeting later on today. And I know when I go in and I say, so this is what we're noticing. And I asked about executive functioning because I'm like an executive functioning junkie. And so I'll go through executive functions in the school. You can tell is like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, we're going to do cognitive and academic testing. <laughs> like, And I say, what about pragmatic language? And they're like, Where did, where'd you come from, lady? <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yes, I think that's true. Okay, so we talked about differences a little bit um, in what happens. And, and I think, you know, you were, you, you gave a good start to the differences and it's really about what we do with the results. So can you kind of dive a little bit deeper into um, what differences exist once you have the evaluation done in an outpatient or private um, therapy clinic setting as opposed to in a school setting? Yeah, um, with the private evaluation, um, we have the, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. That's the book that psychologists use um, in order to reference whether or not somebody meets criteria for a certain diagnosis. Um, we've got 157 different diagnoses in there to choose from, and we can use that information for um, treatment planning and educational programming for that student. 
So, um, you know, if it's somebody that needs therapies, they can use that medical diagnosis um, to qualify for ABA therapy or speech or OT or things like that. So, um, and a lot of times getting down into the detail of, you know, like it's actually based in anxiety or it's based in depression or things like that, that can also be helpful information for that child's therapist or people that are working with them to know as far as treatment planning. Um, on the school side of things, you know, we don't have that broad range of diagnoses to choose from. We've got 13 different eligibility categories that we can say yes or no to if they can be, you know, like plugged into one of those categories. And it doesn't really have the level of specificity that we have with private evaluations. So um, in my state, it's EBD, emotional behavioral disorder. That could be you have anxiety, you have depression, you have, you know, like some other type of mood disorder, but we don't really clearly specify what it is. So we don't know how to best treat and work with that student. So, um, you know, on the school side of things, when we check a box for one of these eligibility categories, and then on the private side, it's what is this diagnosis? And then that diagnosis information can be used for treatment planning down the road. Yeah. And of course, in the school side, we have to get past the hurdle of does it adversely impact your education before we even come up with whether or not we're going to craft a goal to address it. And I think that's very frustrating for parents, but it's the way that the law is written. And if you really think about it, of course, that makes sense, because why would you need specially designed instruction if it isn't impacting your academic or functional performance? So um it's just a matter of knowing that it exists and people like us explaining it to our clients so that they have some ownership in, in the rationale behind the school's um, quote unquote refusal to provide services. Yeah, and you know, you were mentioning executive functioning and pragmatic language earlier. Um, I, I see many, many situations where know, well, you've got good grades in school, like, you know, we don't have anything to do with this. And I'm like, even if this student has good grades, you know, it might be, you know, like, they're super disorganized. And the only reason they have these good grades is because mom is playing homework coach for hours and hours every night. Or, you know, like, even if they have good grades, they don't have any friends because their communication skills are not that great. So there are other things outside of just their grades in the classroom that could be ad adversely affected. And I think a lot of times people lose sight of that one. You know, that like I get really emotional about that because I have this one student that is like the the unicorn of advocacy um, efforts because um, this child's um, parents identified through private evaluation that the child had dyslexia that impacted him, but not in a way that um, he probably, you know, I don't want to say should have been eligible. That ship has sailed. I'm sure my statute's gone. I don't mind putting it on the record, even though this is a hypothetical situation. Um, but you know, he, um, he his dyslexia. He was he. It was not really really severe. Um, but executive functioning and anxiety were like you know really really significant for this um, kiddo. And so the parents tried a couple times without the without me and weren't getting much progress. And I came in and um, and was able to articulate really enough to provoke empathy in the team that the team was like, oh, we want to provide these services. And a lot of things were accommodations and modifications that he was already getting, you know, because that's what good teachers do. Um, but you know, you've got a right to have them documented in a 504 or an IEP. And so 
we got that done. Um, and now the child has transitioned to two new schools and, you know, straight A's, like best scores on the class project in the eighth grade kind of stuff. Like this child is just bonkers great, but it's that conscientious piece that's actually, and this is kind of what you're saying before about your autism example, the conscientiousness of this child it, and the anxiety is what's making the child overperform to get straight A's, but the child needs those accommodations in order for that entire, like all the cogs of the wheel to, to fit and to work. Um, and it's just so great because time after time, you know, the parents will say, we're really nervous about this new team. Are they really going to understand it? Because the, the child's scores are incredible and his grades are great. And, he, and, and every teacher loves him. He's everybody's favorite. He's a gifted athlete. And then it works. And it's like, yeah. hallelujah, because it does not always work that way. So I say that to tell people, I don't think that's the magic of Ashley Barlow. I just think that some teams really do get it. And it's really great when it happens. So let's talk about um, the kind of um, facts and circumstances that might lead a family to pursue an outside evaluation um, if they have a school evaluation or to pursue a school evaluation or, or to at least ask for a school meeting to review a private evaluation report. Um, I, I think the second one that you asked is a little bit easier, so I'll, I'll do that one first. Um, sometimes if people have had a private evaluation completed, um, they might want to take those results to the school and request some extra services, or if that student is already receiving services, request some changes to their plan or program. Um, here in my area, there are many school districts that if all the components of testing that they need for school have been completed, they'll just go ahead and accept that private psych and use those scores to determine eligibility or make changes to the IEP as needed. There are a handful that have the policy that, you know, regardless of if you have a private psych, our psychologist has to do their own testing anyway. So there are a few places that have that, but at least you have that private side to be able to consider another source of information as well. Mm -hmm. um, on the other side of things, um, for families that wanna go out and seek a private evaluation, a lot of people that come into my private office, it's because they've been at school playing the waiting game, like let's wait and see, and, like they might get better. We're gonna try some interventions and, so much time has passed that the parent is just frustrated and they want to go ahead and get their own evaluation so that they can know what's going on so that they can help their student. And then um, like we were talking about before, sometimes it's more than just can we check off a box on eligibility versus we need to know more specifics about what's going on with this student. Um, you know, at school, they're not allowed to diagnose anybody. You can say things like, this student has characteristics that are similar to other kids that have been diagnosed with ADHD, but you can't diagnose them. Um, you know, like if you can officially get an ADHD diagnosis or an anxiety diagnosis or whatever it is that the concern is, um, that might allow you to take that information to your doctor if medication is needed or take that information to a private therapist who will be able to work with that student in a more specific way that's gonna help them. So that's another potential reason that somebody would want to get a private psych instead of a school psych. 
Yeah, those are beautiful reasons. And then what about the IEE kind of idea? You know, the, the, the parent right of the independent educational evaluation. So for people that don't know, um, one of the parent rights is the right to an IEE. So if the district does an evaluation and you disagree with an evaluation for any reason, then you can get an independent educational evaluation at the public's expense. So the district has to pay for that evaluation. And Brandy, I, in my case, most of the time, the reason that we disagree if we're asking for an IEE is because of the incomprehensiveness, another word I made up, um, of the school's um, evaluation. But I'm sure that, that you know, there are other reasons that people would request them, right? Yeah, and, and what you said, um, you know, just a bare bones evaluation that doesn't look at all the areas that we needed to investigate. Um, that's the most common reason that I see. Um, you know, the most egregious one would be we did a bare bones assessment that we didn't even have enough information to find this child eligible, but if we did a little bit more digging, we might find those processing deficits. So we might find those academic difficulties that just a surface level assessment might have missed. Um, and then even beyond that, even if the child is found eligible, um, that evaluation should have been thorough enough that we would know what specific goals and objectives we should use, what specific strategies we should use. And um, sometimes the evaluation just isn't giving enough to be able to use it for, for program planning. So those are the reasons that I see people making those requests for IEEs. Um, you know, it's kind of a bare bones. We didn't get all the information that we needed. And um, going back to request another evaluation, um, an IEE at the school's expense can get that information that they need to help that student. You are amazing. <laughs> you can explain something so succinctly and articulately and it like you could, somebody could write down what you write and it would make sense or what you say and it would make sense. I mean, that is so beautiful. I need to like package you up and put you in my IEP I, briefcase. I've got to get what I say down into short little snippets because I don't like writing long reports. It takes too long. So <laughs> that's why you're so good. I use all the words and it's like, I can tell that people are like, come on, come on, spit it out. But I, it just doesn't happen until I've thought through it all. Um, you are such a wealth of information and I, as I said, when we started, I love following you on social media. Why don't you tell my audience where they can find you to be able to access all those gems that you put out there? So both on Facebook and Instagram, my handle is your IEP source. Um, I try to post blog articles, tips, things like that, inspirational quotes um, that have information that can help families with special education, IEP 504 issues. Um, my website, yourieptsource.com and email hello at yourieptsource. You are amazing. Thank you so much for joining us and um, we'll have to have you back. All right, great, thanks.